Hello and welcome to Whiskey Talk, the first podcast from the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. I'm Richard Gosselin, editor of the Society's members magazine Unfiltered, and in Whiskey Talk I'll be introducing you to some of the people who make whiskey, the places it comes from, and the characters who bring it to life. For this first edition, we're starting off, appropriately enough I think, with a man who founded the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, Pip Hills. He joined us recently at our spiritual home of the vaults in Leith, where he started the society in 1983 for a very special night of reflection and a tasting of the society's first ever bottling. As well as cracking open that bottle of cask 1.1, Pip told a packed members room at the vaults all about the society's unlikely origins and how it grew to become the world's leading whiskey club. I'll leave it up to Pip to tell the story in his own inimitable style. I suggest you pour yourself a society dram and settle down. Right, well, um, there's a certain amount of false pretenses going on here. When David asked me if I would come and talk about the whiskey to a few members, I said, yeah, sure. Because I sort of, without asking, I had in mind the notion of three or four people in the tasting room, and I'd sit and tell them. So I, I, um, I'm, I'm not disappointed. I'm touched that you all think it worth coming here, and I hope I don't disappoint you. Um, I guess there may be some false pretenses as far as your guys are concerned because those of you who saw my picture in the newsletter, you know, the big full page one, I would have expected you were all expecting a sort of half-witted geriatric. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I am many things, but let us hope that I'm not that yet. <coughs> um, I said, I, David said, would you just talk about the society and how it came about? So I said, yeah, I mean, that's easy. It's like falling off a log. So <coughs> if you are agreeable, I will just tell you what happened as best I can from the beginning. And it all started rather appropriately with the field of barley. Um, and we're talking about the late 1970s here. Uh, no, maybe about 76, 78, something like that. <coughs> Two of my oldest and dearest friends are people called Duncan and Kay McCardle. Now, Kay's, they bought a little farm up in Aberdeenshire about 1978, something like that. The reason they were able to, they were both prehistoric archaeologists by profession, not the obvious people to, to buy a farm. And they didn't have any money. But fortunately, Kay's grandfather was an enterprising sort of guy. He was a gold prospector in the Kalgoorlie field in the 1890s. And he struck gold in Kalgoorlie, and being a very crafty guy, <coughs> he didn't tell anybody about it, and 
he didn't take he didn't take the gold to the bozer. He went to the assay office, and the assay office certified that this was the real thing. So he went to the bank and said to the bank, look, I've struck rich. I want to borrow money. And the bank loaned him some money. And he <coughs> bought up the surrounding claims. And he made an absolute fortune out of it. <coughs> so having made a fortune as a gold prospector, he then bought a schooner and went pearl diving on the west coast of Australia and made another fortune on the west coast of Australia. <coughs> in 1922, the, the, the West Australian government were building a road, a toll road called the Hornybrook Highway. And Kay's grandfather invested in the Horn, Hornybrook Highway. Now, from 1922 until the Australian government nationalised it, in 1978, Hornybrook Highway shares paid a dividend of 100% per annum. So there was quite a lot of money about. Kay's, Kay's parents managed to get rid of most of it by sheer fecklessness. But there was a little bit left when the old boy died in the 1970s. And Duncan and Kay decided they didn't really want to be prehistoric archaeologists, or rather they liked the idea of being sort of gentlemanly prehistoric archaeologists. And they bought this little farm on the edge of the Howe of Afford, and they still live there. <coughs> and as a close friend of theirs, of course, I went up to sea. And I liked the place, it was lovely. I mean, an 18th century farmhouse, a 17th century water mill, a few fields, one of them full of barley. <coughs> and in the yard was a huge quantity of ancient rusting farm machinery. And Duncan, Duncan and I both liked machines and we prowled about. And I said to Duncan, I said, what's that pointing up at this machine? And he said, I'm not sure. He said, I think it's a combine harvester. I said, how does it work? And he said, I have no idea. <coughs> but he said, we could deal with a combine harvester because we've got a field of barley that needs mown. Oh, I said, I mean, the, the confidence of youth. I said, let's see if we can get it going. <coughs> so we spent a couple of days on this thing, Duncan with a, an oil can, and it had a, a BMC 2.2 diesel, I remember. And the injectors were still in it, so it was probably okay despite having stood in the rain for 20 years. And we borrowed a tractor battery and we fired it up and we got it to run. And we sort of pulled levers and pressed things and found out what did what. <coughs> and we thought, well, why not try and mow this field of barley? So we went, we took one, one evening we took the harvester down into the barley field and we could see people passing by and looking curiously at us <coughs> and in the morning it was a beautiful morning we started this machine up Duncan perched high on top running the levers me driving the tractor with a pile of sacks and we drove up the field and Duncan never having driven this thing before, of course, did a kind of wavy line up the field. 
And, but it worked. And I kept providing the sacks and we got lots of barley. And throughout that, it was a long summer's day and people came by, all the local farmers who had heard that some townies had bought a farm at Den Mill. And they all came by and they would stop their cars and they'd lean on the fence watching with great amusement as these complete tyros drove up the field of barley, making a complete art of it, but getting the barley. And people would come by in their cars and they would honk because the road was blocked. And then they would get out of their cars to find out why the road was blocked and they would see the show and they would lean on the fence. <laughs> and so the road was blocked for an hour or two and then the police came by and shifted them all on. And we spent the whole day and the word went around because these farming districts, everybody knows everyone, and everyone thought it was very funny that these townies who had come to Den Mill should have tried to mow them barley and made such a mess of it. <coughs> By the end of the day, we had filled a barn with barley and it was bone dry. And that evening, the weather changed and it started raining. And it rained for six weeks solid. And Duncan had the only crop of barley taken off the Howe of Afford that, that year. Everybody else lost money and Duncan had a thousand pounds worth of barley in the barn. So <coughs> suddenly Duncan's, Duncan's status in the valley rose amazingly and people started coming by and being sociable. And his next door neighbor was an old boy called Stan. <coughs> and Stan came by one evening and he brought with him a lemonade bottle full of dark liquid. And it turned out that this lemonade bottle was Glenfartas whiskey. And Stan was in the habit of buying once a year from Glenfartas, he would buy a quarter cask, just like that one over there. And he had a stand at his fireside and he would drive a spigot in it and he would draw his drums from it and he came over. Now, I thought this was just the best liquor I had ever tasted. I had never tasted anything like that. Now, I was brought up in central Scotland and there was always whiskey in the house. It was Hague's or Bell's or something of the sort, blended whiskey, because lowland Scots, indeed most Scots, knew nothing about malt whiskey. Blended whiskey had completely taken over the market. <coughs> and I didn't like whiskey. Not surprising, because the, frankly, the quality of something like Bell's is infinitely better today than it was then. And what we did it was probably instrumental in helping that improvement. Um, so I thought it was wonderful whiskey. And more to the point, the next morning, I didn't have the usual hellish hangover. <laughs> so I thought, there's something in this. So we went over to visit Stan. And Stan, of course, insisted on us having more whiskey. And I asked him about the whiskey. And he told me. And once. Once a year, he would get in his old Land Rover and he would drive up over the Cabrach from Aberdeenshire and down into the Valley of the Spey. And when he 
when he got to about Glenfiddich, he would turn left and he would go up the valley and he would go to Glenfarclas, where from George Grant he bought a quarter cask. Now, we tend to assume that whiskey has always been sold in bottle, but this was not in fact the case until well into the 19th century. Bottles were relatively rare and relatively expensive items, and people tended to buy their whiskey in stone jars like that one over there. Um, or if they were wealthy enough, they bought them in cask. Now, this, this tradition by, by the 1970s was completely unknown to central Scotland, but it still continued to some extent in the Highlands. And Stan's yearly cask was an example of this. And so, I, having found out about it, of course, I came back to Edinburgh and told all my friends. And I kind of have a history of <coughs> getting a daft idea and then pursuing it. <laughs> and um, a lot of my friends will tell you that quite a lot of these daft ideas ended in disaster. But this one came up reasonably well. I said to my friends, why don't I see if I can get one of these casks and we'll club together and we'll divvy it up and we'll all have a great time and we'll get, honestly, this is the best whiskey you ever came across in all your days. So all my friends said, oh, that's a grand idea. <laughs> they didn't have to do anything. So I, I spoke to Stan and Stan said, oh, he would be happy to put in the good word for me for, to Glen Farkless because, of course, they wouldn't sell to just anyone. They only sold to the people they knew and they only sold to the people who had been buying from them for generations. And, but I went up to Glen Farkless and I saw the grants and I explained who I was and that I was a friend of Stan's. Now, because I was a friend of Stan's, I must be an okay person from Glen Farkless's point of view. Now, it just happened <coughs> that one of Glen Farkless's customers who, was, who bought a cask once a year had inconsiderately died. And this chap had left nobody to inherit his supply of casks. So the grant said to me, well, seeing you're a friend of Stan's, seeing that we've got a spare cask, you can have it. And I said, how much? They said two and a half thousand pounds. And I blanched because that was a lot of money in those days. And I went back and I assembled all my chums and I said, right guys, this is the deal. It'll cost us two and a half grand and we'll get about a gallon each. And they all said, yes, yes, sure. So <coughs> I, I'm not boring you here. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it was, it was arranged. I arranged it with Glen Farkless that I would buy this cask of Glen Far that of their whiskey and that I would come up and get it. Now, <coughs> I should maybe explain that <coughs> my transport for 25 years was the same car. It was an unusual car. It was a 1937 
four and a half liter like Gondor Grand Touring Saloon. It was about 17 feet long, most of which was bonnet, and it had headlamps about that size. They weren't very good headlamps. They gave a sort of yellow glow, and when you wanted to dip them, the whole headlamp pointed down at the road. <laughs> um, it was also drafty, and its heater didn't work very well, but it was very grand and a lot of fun. And the well, it, was, it was towards the end of the year, and I thought, I'm going to have to wait until we get some good weather. Now, it was about that time that, now I don't want to stray too far, but there are quite a lot of associated stories here. <laughs> it was about that time that my friend Francis Gordon threw a sherry party. Now, I lived in the new town of Edinburgh. It was new in 1760. And <coughs> my, one of my neighbors was a, an old and elegant and educated lady called Frances Gordon. And every now and then, Frances would throw a sherry party for all her old friends, who were mostly a lot older than me. And I would act as butler at Frances' sherry party. Now, as butler, I had two jobs. One was to go around handing out sherry to everyone. But the most important job was as regards the glasses. None of Francis's furniture was later than, I guess, about the end of the 18th century. And it was very beautiful. But the cabinet she kept her sherry glasses in was full of woodworm. And the woodworm multiplied. And sometimes the little beetles would drop into the sherry glasses and would be unable to climb out. So my most important job as butler was to go through the sherry glasses with a dish towel and extract the beetles before I served the sherry. Now, <coughs> I, had, I had assembled various members of my syndicate, and one of my syndicate was a close friend of Francis called Richie Calder. Now, I don't know if this name means anything to any of you, but it would have done a generation before. Richie was an amazing guy. <coughs> he was a kind of, he was a radical journalist in the 1930s. In 1942, the British government set up a very smart and very shady outfit called the Political Warfare Executive. Now, the object of the political warfare executive was to feed disinformation to the Nazis and try to disrupt their decision-making. And they were in many ways very effective at this because they were a lot, very bright bunch of guys and they hired Ritchie to run this outfit. <coughs> and my favorite, and, and I, I accept I'm in danger of digressing, but it's too good a story to let go. Um, <laughs> My favorite story about Ritchie at that time is they had discovered that Hitler had a, per a personal astrologer who fed him astrological predictions. And they somehow managed to open a channel of communication to Hitler's astrologer. And they got a top flight astrologer, if such things exist, they got this very well-known astrologer 
in the south of England, who was a pal of Hitler's astrologer, and they used this astrologer to feed misinformation to Hitler's astrologer, who then fed advice to Hitler based on this. So there was a kind of double level of irrationality <laughs> introduced. You can imagine, they had a lot of fun. Um, Ritchie was great fun. He, he was one of the people who founded Films of Scotland after the war, started the documentary film movement and all that sort of stuff. Now, I had recruited Ritchie two or three years before that because, and again, I'm trying not to digress. Um, a few years before that, Scottish television's um, license was up for renewal. And one night I got drunk in the Traverse Theatre bar and I devised a scheme for taking STV's license off him. And I got, I got, it was called Better Scottish Television. And I got Richie as one of the good and the great to front it. And uh, we didn't get it. We raised 10 million pounds, which is a lot of money then. And they, you know, we could have bought STV, but we didn't get the license, which is just as well, because then as now, I never had the slightest interest in television. But um, we had a lot of fun. And I said to Richie, I said, Richie, the syndicate. He said, yes, when are we getting our whiskey? <laughs> and I said, well, the weather's been lousy and the Lagonda leaks. And he said, I know, excuses, when are we getting our whiskey? I said, well, pretty soon. He said, well, make it as soon as you can. And I said, why, what's the hurry? He said, well, I was in Moscow a fortnight ago and I had a heart attack. And they tell me I'm going to have more and I'm not going to last long. So, as soon as you can, and if anything happens to me, make sure I get my gallon, you can use it at my wake. So, as things turned out, the weather was really hellish all the rest of the year, and it was into January before, before I decided to go. And I, phon I phoned around the members of my syndicate one morning, saying, right, guys, tomorrow, if it holds, tomorrow night I will go up to Glenfarclas. And I phoned Philipston House, where Richie lived. And I, I said hello into the phone. And I got Angus, Angus Calder, his good historian. Anger, and Angus said, oh, hello, is it Pip? And I said, yes, Angus, I'm astonished you recognize my voice from just saying hello. Angus said, well, as a matter of fact, I was kind of expecting you to call. And I said, why is that? Can I speak to your father first? He said, I'm sorry to say you can't. He's dead. He said he died an hour ago. But before he died, he said, he said he was in a lot of pain. And he said, would you bring me a dram, Angus? And I brought him a glass of Glenlivet. And he said he drank his dram. And he said, I've a feeling Pip's going to ring about this whiskey syndicate. And he said, if I go before then, make sure I get my, my cask. So I was quite touched. I got in the Lagonda. I drove up over the Grampians. I went to Glenfarthas. I paid them two and a half thousand in readies. 
and I, the cask would just about fit in the boot of the Lagonda, and we drove back, and um, we met, we met in my lobby, and we, I'd got some glass jars and some plastic pipe, and we siphoned the whiskey out of the barrel, and everybody tried it first, of course, to make sure it was okay, and then tried it again to make it sure it was still okay. <laughs> and the whole thing was a great success, and I breathed a sigh of relief, thinking, that's fine, that's it over and done with, I can get on with my life now. But it didn't work out that way. <coughs> Within weeks, I was getting phone calls, and I was getting phone calls from two classes of people. One was the members of the syndicate who would ring me up and say, look, I'm getting low on whiskey. When are we getting some more? And I would say, I've no intention of going for more whiskey. Get lost. Other class of person was friends of the friends who would say, I've just drunk some of your so-and-so syndicate whiskey. It's amazing. Can I get some? Can I join your syndicate? So I would say, well, give me your name and your phone number. And if it, I'm not saying anything is going to happen, but if it does, I'll let you know. So eventually there came a time when I had to call a meeting of the syndicate and say, look, guys, you lot are out of whiskey. I'm out of whiskey because, of course, word got around Edinburgh that I had this amazing whiskey and all my friends came round. <laughs> and they drank all my whiskey. I tell you, I didn't make any money out of this firm for at least the first 10 years of its existence, not least because my friends drank all my whiskey. <clears throat> but um, we had a meeting and I told them about the other guys who wanted to join and they all said, yes, sure, let's have them in. It was fine for them in a spirit of generosity, but I was the guy who had to phone up Glenfarthness and explain that could I have another two casks of whiskey? And they said, well, you, you're, you've got, you're down for one a year. What you've got was a 10 or 11-year-old. You can have a 9-year-old and an 8-year-old. And that's it, because we won't sell you anything less than 8-year-old. So... I had a, got a trailer for the Lagonda and I duly went up to Glenfarthas and I brought back two casks of whiskey and the syndicate met and um, it, was, it was just astonishing. I mean, just the word spread just enormously people were ringing me up all of the time and eventually I called a meeting of the syndicate and said look guys something's going on here something that I don't really understand but it seems daft that there are so many people want this stuff and nobody is selling it to them <laughs> now I didn't altogether understand but I had a dear friend called John Ferguson now, I could tell you stories about Ferguson. Ferguson and I had been mountaineers when we were young. Um, I was running a business as a sort of unorthodox 
tax accountant at the time. And, and I had lots of poor clients. I didn't make a fortune out of it. But, and I didn't do fancy tax avoidance schemes. I protected my clients from the rapacious inland revenue. But a chap rang up and made an appointment. He was a, an academic. He was a sociologist who taught in Strathclyde University. And we did the business. And after it, we, we were having a cup of coffee and said, tell me, you're known as Pip, is that right? Because I used to go by my full name. And I said, yeah. I said, when you were young, did you climb mountains? And I said, yeah. He said, well, in that case, we have met before, and the last time we met, you threatened to kill me. <laughs> now, I have always been the most peaceable of people. I, I moved in some kind of rough circles at various times in my life, but I was never given to violence. So this seemed to me highly unlikely. But am I running out of time here? You're all good. You're sure? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm quite enjoying this stuff. Like this. Well, <laughs> if I c there are so many right. stories associated with it. It's, it's difficult to sort of keep a narrative line of any sort. <laughs> but I think the Ferguson story is worth telling you about. Um, John reminded me of the occasion. Now. When I was young, I was a mountaineer. I was very foolish, and I ne very nearly died of it. But we were good. And one wet Sunday in Glencoe, a mate of mine and I, a guy called Dougal Huston, whom if any of you know about mountaineering, may have heard of, because Dougal and Don Willans climbed the north face of Everest biggest mountaineering route on the planet. But that was many years later. Anyway, Dougal and I were prowling around Glencoe and it was wet and we wanted to climb something. But of course, climbing hard rock in the wet is a very, very dangerous business. And more importantly, if we tried to climb a well-known route and failed, the world would go around the glen that these hard men had failed. So we decided to do something that nobody had ever succeeded in doing, and that was to make a traverse across the face of a big cliff called Anachdu, a horrible place, overhanging grass and loose stones, very dangerous. <coughs> and I was, Dougal led off, and I was, I belayed him, and I saw two guys coming up a path near the crag, and I knew them to be members of a ruffianly group of mountaineers called the Craig Do from Glasgow. And they were our, our opponents, as it were. And I waved to them, and they waved back. And we went on. We, it, it was several hours later, and Dougal and I, we were in, there was a kind of shallow groove on the face, and the two of us were teetering on a tiny hold in this groove. And we couldn't see any way up or down or right or left. We could just see it. There was an overhang to the right, but we couldn't see a way of getting under it. When we heard a rumble up somewhere above, and 
you get to know that sort of noise. It was an avalanche, it was a rock avalanche, probably started by these two guys from the Craig Doe. And somehow or other, we managed to cling under this overhang, where previously we thought life would be insupportable. And these rocks roared down where we had been seconds before. And we survived, but we lost a lot of gear. And we, we, managed to, we managed to get off. It took us about six hours to get off the face into the night. And I saw these two guys going down to the pub. And apparently I shouted, you bastards, if I catch you, I'll kill you. <laughs> and I, at the time, I meant it. But I had never met the guy from then until that time. And he and I then formed an alliance. And we had a great time for good many years. And my only complaint was that Ferguson inconsiderately went and died. And that put an end to some of our hijinks. But I have <laughs> written about him. And he was, he was a smashing guy. He, he sang songs and played a guitar. And he was the most consummate poacher. And the Craig Do made a habit of poaching quite as well as mountaineering. We disapproved of it. We thought it showed insufficient seriousness. But um, Ferguson was a brilliant poacher. And in fact, after we'd started the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, I had a plan which Ferguson agreed with. And what we were going to do is we were going to use the Whiskey Society to, we were going to get ourselves somewhere in the Highlands, we were going to get a big country house. And the plan is, I had found a magazine. It was sort of American shooters magazine. There are lots of people, not just in America, but in places like Italy, where people want to shoot things. And they'll shoot almost anything, especially the Italians. And we thought, well, I mean, any idiot can shoot things. I mean, given modern technology, shooting a deer from half a mile away is a piece of cake. And John was an expert. And so what we would reckoned we would do is we would organize holidays. It would, it would be a tourist business. And we would take these people and show them how to poach. <laughs> and during the day, we would train them on our own estate. And at night, we would creep out to the adjoining estates <laughs> And we would poach their deer and salmon. And we would do a deal with the proprietors, whereby nobody but we knew that it was going on. But basically, um, if the guys got apprehended by the keepers, that was their, their problem. If they got thrown in jail, all the better. Because what could be better from some guy from Wisconsin going home telling how he was not only had he shot a deer in the middle of the night but he had been imprisoned for it. It was a great scheme. We planned to have Scotch Malt Whiskey Society whiskey to drink in the house. We were going to have a core of cheerful hookers to provide the entertainment. It, it could not have failed but as I say alas Ferguson died. But I told John that I had 
I told John that I had had this idea for maybe doing what the syndicate had done, only doing it commercially. <coughs> but I knew, no, I knew nothing about the whiskey industry and I knew nobody in the industry. And John said, I know the very man, <coughs> a chap called Russell Sharp. Now, at the time, Russell was the chief chemist for the Shivas Group, which he meant he was one of the whiskey industry's leading technical experts. And we arranged a meeting in the Horseshoe Bar in Glasgow. I recommend it. It's an old punter's bar. And <laughs> it sold good beer and bad pies. And we, I told Russell of this plan. And Russell said, well, he said, there's no way the distillers will let you do that. They won't sell you whiskey for a start. If you put their name on a bottle or anywhere at all, they'll be down on you like a ton of bricks and you'll find yourself in the jail or at least faced with, with court action. <coughs> but, he said, sounds like a great idea to me. <laughs> and if you can find a way of doing it, then I'd be happy to join. Now, that meant that we had one of the industry's leading technical experts on board. And basically, we just, we got the syndicate together and we'd, we decided we had to form a limited company. So I went to my lawyer and said, can you get us a company and we discussed what it should be called, and we decided it would be called the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. And the lawyer said, well, there's no way the registrar of companies is going to give you a name like that. And I said, why not? He said, well, anything that sounds as though it is of national significance, they're pretty, they're pretty sticky about giving permission. And I said, well, we are a Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, as far as I know, we're the only Scotch malt whisky society in existence. He said, well, we'll try them. And he came off and the registrar made a few inquiries, to which I replied, and he gave us the name. And there were a lot of people in the whisky industry, I think, were none too pleased. <laughs> um, I think it's probably a good time just to okay. enjoy your first round while Pip's still talking, so you can maybe listen to a bit more. You're probably all waiting for that one. What we're going to get to try is 2.94, coming from Glenlivet Distillery. It's a genuine Amin Green Genie, a very nice, fruity, easy-drinking whiskey. Uh, Glenlivet itself, the distillery, quite a famous distillery, first ever legal distillery in Scotland itself. Well known in the industry in terms of the size as well. Many distilleries back in history used to try and copy its name, so Balvenie, people like that would be copying Glenlivet Distillery itself. I think Pip does have a few stories about Glenlivet itself to try as well, but I'll leave you to enjoy them and we'll carry on with Pip, who's much more interested than me chatting away anyway. Okay. Sorry, working left to right, far left one number one, and the third one will be number three on the right hand side for you. That's nice. Like it? Do you want to take a wee break and then yeah, we'll, have we'll a do for a minute. two couple of ways. Mm. I could do number two and then we can... Do, do what you please. Yeah. No Was that okay? Oh, that's good. happy. Oh yeah, you can see that. Oh, well, especially the regulars. Hmm? The regulars that I know are at the table here. <laughs> 
in awe. Absolutely awe. No, you're doing a great job. Mm -hmm. So, a question. Was Glenlivet chosen as the second distillery out of respect to Richie, or because you had the Shivers contact? That's a good point. I'm not terribly sure. Because it's uh, interesting that you're the first technical yeah. person you got yeah. introduced was from Shivers, and Richie's mm -hmm. dram mm -hmm. before the I'm not, I couldn't honestly Glenlivet. say that. But I was just saying, there's rather a sweet story about my uncle Walter and Glenlivet. Uh -huh. uh, and Glenlivet in the war against the Patans mm -hmm. on the northwest frontier. Do you think I should tell that? Possibly. <coughs> It'll only take a couple. Subconscious of about the fact that there's so many roads well, no, well, <coughs> I've said this once. I said we'll do number two now. That and then. Just Does the town site guys mean anything to you? Well, it's a town yeah. that was yeah, invented. I'll do both. I'll do two by a German three. philosopher yeah. called Hegel, whom I, for my sins, spent several years studying, hmm. and he maintained that the world <laughs> moved. So, according to so yes. the spread of ideas, and that different yeah, no ages worries, would have different um, different sets of ideas, how ideas would move. I was going to say, we can take change. questions if you and want to. And he was right in many ways, because yeah. you can see how, oh, okay. no how the world changes because of It'd ideas be a bit weird asking it in public. widespread. <laughs> yeah. And that's what he meant by the zeitgeist. Yeah. And <coughs> on a number of occasions, I've, I've, I've felt this, yeah. that, no, this wasn't just me being daft, yeah. that there was something... Beyond the coincidence. That, yeah, something just kind of nudging along. I don't know. Excuse me, can I ask you a question? Yes, of did course. You, did your Lagonda have a diesel engine? Yes. <laughs> I remember you from a long, long time ago. It was a Gardner diesel. Yeah. Yes. I had a yacht in the same place as you were, when you were doing that five, you remember? Yes, yes. Do you remember a big guy called Ian? The red-headed builder. Yeah. Wild man, stolen flower mine. He's yeah. getting very old now. He's you give him my regards, if you see. Yes, I had it in Granton. That was the Clan Garden. That's right. It wasn't a pipey. It was. It was a Zulu skiff. It was a, a Lochfine skiff. They built. They built small versions of the Zulu, on the west coast to fish the herring. Not when you started speaking, I recognised you. As soon as you mentioned the Lagonda, yeah, yeah. Excuse yeah. me. No, not at all. It's a pleasure. What I'll do is I'll introduce two and three, and then you can just carry on chatting okay. through it. And then when the food's ready, they're just going to bring out the food as well. So then you don't have any time issues or anything. Okay, I yeah. should probably not talk about my uncle Walter and the Glenlivet. <laughs> every story is um, great. I'm enjoying every bit of it. That's the problem. I I started in listening to two YouTube much and thought, oh, I'm actually doing a tasting. <laughs> so, so, ladies and gentlemen, what I'm going to do, we're going to introduce you to uh, dram number two and number three, and then we'll carry on with Pip chatting through it so you can enjoy the drams while he's chatting to you as well. Um, the second one we're going to get to try uh, comes from the most f famous distillery that we work with. Pip has talked to a wee bit about it as well, distillery number one. It is, of course, Glen Farkless. And what we have here in your glass is a 22-year-old. Uh, it's originally in ex-bourbon, and then we've 
actually matured it in a heavy toast medium char hogshead so it will have some of that oaky element to it as well but I'll leave you to enjoy that one and then the third one that you're going to get to try after that will come from distillery number five it's released 69 so the 69th cast that we've bottled from uh, Ockintoshin I was meant to say as well we are doing one to five here tonight as well so it's all going to be from the first five distilleries you're going to get to try that of course this man here has worked well with in terms of the distilleries but coming from Ockintoshin 13 years for your third one in an ex-bourbon cast then we've transferred it for the additional four years into a uh, Pedro Jimenez cast to finish it off as well. So that gives you a 17-year-old Ockentoshin for you to try as well. Um, I'll leave you to enjoy two and three. A question I might have for Pip himself. Uh, Glenn Farkless here was the very first distillery to actually release a cash strength whiskey. You might have heard of it, the 105 whiskey. Um, for me, I wanted to ask maybe how did their view in terms of the industry, Glenn Farkless, differ to everybody else? And on top of that, how much harder was it to get cast from the rest of the distilleries in, in Scotland itself at the time in the 1980s? I think for me it'd be quite an interesting thing to touch upon. But I'll leave you to enjoy them. The food will be coming out while Pip is chatting as well. It's just to keep the, the night flowing for us all and we can hear as much as possible from Pip himself. Okay? Enjoy, guys. Right, should I get up again? Yeah, unfortunately you've got to get up again. Sorry, Pip. <laughs> okay, look. I was going to tell you the story about Glenlivet and my uncle Walter, who fought the Patans on the northwest frontier of India in the 1930s, but I think I would be better just to carry on the narrative with the society. I think that's more important. Maybe later on, if I'm sufficiently sober <laughs> and still studying, uh, you can remind me about the Glenlivet story. Um, the trajectory was then pretty, pretty clear. We, the members of the syndicate, pitched in some cash, not a lot of cash, to fund the company. And we looked around for, we thought, we're going to need a place to do this in. Now, I liked Leith. I lived in the posh part of Edinburgh. It wasn't posh then, by the way. It only became posh later. But I like, and Leith, Leith was indescribably different. I mean, it, well, I, I, I was just saying, saying this uh, to David at lunch today. I mean, just indescribably different. The whole place was huge tenements and whiskey bonds and warehouses and pubs and not much else. And it was all black as coal and very, very run down. <coughs> um, but I liked it. I liked the whole feel about the place. And I used to prowl about and just look down the alleys and so on. And there was one building above all that I admired and it was the vaults. So when we did, when we'd formed our company, I thought I looked. I stood out in the street there and looked up at the vaults and thought that would be a very suitable home for the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. So it was it was functioning. <laughs> there were lorries coming in and out the gate, and I walked in and walked up the stair, and there was a lassie at the reception. 
and said, who are you? What do you want? What can I do for you? She was very nice. And I said, well, um, can I speak to someone in charge, please? And she said, certainly. And she rang a bell, and a nice little, slightly rotund man called John Walter came out, dressed in a three-piece suit, very traditional old Scottish businessman. And he said, who was I, and what could he do for me? And I said who I was, and I said, I'm looking for premises for a new company. And I said, would, this would suit me very nicely. You wouldn't be thinking of selling it, would you? <coughs> and I was speaking to David just a few minutes ago <coughs> about the idea of the zeitgeist. Now, I don't know if that means much to most of you. They, for my sins, I spent years studying the philosophy of a German philosopher called Hegel, who invented the idea. And his idea was that society changes because of the way in which ideas move through society. And if you think of it, you can see how the, the tenor and the beliefs of societies change gradually. And you can influence this to a certain extent, but basically it does what it does. <coughs> and Hegel thought, Hegel thought that this was that the, the whole universe was basically a mental construct and that we were only an expression of this and this was how it was it was called dialectical idealism and just occasionally you get that queer feeling or at least I sometimes get it and I got it when I walked up these stairs I sort of felt the hairs rising on the back of my neck and I said to John Walter I'm looking for a building to run this company in and this would suit me fine would you think of selling it and he said well as a matter of fact the company is moving out in a month's time and I'm sure if you made them a reasonable offer they would sell it to you so I got went back got members of my syndicate together and said look guys we can get this building I think and we offered them £50,000 and they sold us the lot. <coughs> it was a terrible financial speculation because <coughs> the restoration of the building cost an enormous amount and we all lost our money, but that's by the by. The fact <laughs> is we got it. And this, this room was J.G. Thompson's general office and it was full of desks and things. And <coughs> Richard showed me some old newsletters which he had got from my ex-wife. And I had just been telling him about how somewhere there is a photograph of my little daughter Frances at the age of about five, sitting at a desk just about there, playing autopsies with old telephones and things. And he said, would this be it? And brought it out. Well, just extraordinary, that. Um, so we bought the building and we set up we set up for business we started restoring it and Dana I, I Anne came to see me I had advertised for a secretary for my bit my own business and Anne came to see me for the job I had already filled it by the time Anne came but she seemed a very personable sort of person 
and I explained that I had this daft scheme in mind and we would need someone to run it. And she said, okay. So we installed Anne and a friend of hers in what's now the tasting room and we bought some whiskey. We bought four casks, I think it was, and we had it bottled and there was no marketing plan at all. <laughs> I reckoned if what had happened, if this stuff was as good as I thought it was, then what would happen to the company was what happened to my syndicate. That's to say, people would taste it and they would beat a path to our door. And they did. <laughs> it was just amazing. People would hear about it and come. And people in the press would write about it. And we, we early on adopted a policy of never paying for advertising, which I think is still the case. We said, this is a society. We're not flogging this stuff. We are here. We've got it. We'll sell it to you if you're nice to us and pay us some money. But that's it. And we just sat there and people came and people wrote about us in the newspapers. And that's about it. There are lots of stories associated with it later. But um, that's how it worked. It was the strangest way to begin a business. <laughs> and from early on, I took it upon myself to be in charge of publicity and marketing. And what a gift as a salesman. People, people especially people in the, in the press, would say, how would you describe the product? And I, I would say, oh, that's easy. It's the, be it's the best distilled liquor on the planet and for that matter on any other planet that we know of. <laughs> and they would all, they would all smile indul indulgently. And I would say, if you don't believe me, try it. And it never failed. Um, and <coughs> we just went on bottlings and they flew out of the, out of the door. And people beat a path to our door. It was as simple as that. Well, the thing, the thing is, by 1983, the Scotch whisky industry was in a bad way. Their sales had been falling. For, for a century and more, their sales had just gone on rising, and they were all very comfortable and rather smug. But their sales had started falling, and they didn't know what to do about it. And I'm not sure, that, I'm not surprised they had started falling because in many cases, especially with a lot of the blended whiskies, the quality just wasn't there. And what we were doing, what we were doing was coming in and taking their finest product and marketing it. And they didn't understand what we were doing. It took them 10 years to figure out what was happening. And for, for the best part of 10 years, we had the field completely to ourselves and you know we're looking at all these mega million pound companies 
and saying, what are these guys doing for their salaries? It was just extraordinary. <coughs> but they did eventually cotton on. And I don't think, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that a very large part of the driver of all the fancy whiskies you see in bottle now was a society. I think that's where they all came from, because none of them had a clue until then. And very gradually, very gradually, they got the idea that maybe there would be a market. I think the first people, there were always a few people like Glenn Farkless and McCallan and so on, who knew, um, who, who were trying to make first-class malt and who sold it, but it was a tiny market. We'll leave that there, but there's a lot more to come from Pip in part two of this special evening at the vaults when he describes some of his adventures in publicising the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society and reflects on the influence the club has had on the wider whisky industry over the years. That's coming up in the next episode of Whiskey Talk. In the meantime, be sure to let us know what you think by getting in touch by email at unfiltered at smws.com or to find out more about the society and what we're all about, visit smws.com. Until the next time, cheers. <laughs>